Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Michael Cox here. Uh, it says chair of the LSE, but I don't think I'm chair of the LSE. Um, I'm in the, I hold a chair in the Department of International Relations, and I'm a co-director of a centre here which is uh, sponsoring and supporting this wonderful event this evening, uh, the centre called Ideas. Uh, this lecture on Africa and the world, the view from Washington, which is being organised by the Ideas Africa International Affairs Program, and many congratulations to Dr. Sue Onslow, who's been the driving force behind that. It's the uh, second in the LSE's Africa Talk series. The first was on African whistleblowers, given by Kenya's uh, anti-corruption czar, uh, John uh, Githongo. And it gives us great pleasure this evening to welcome Howard Wolpe, who has very recently uh, stepped down as President Obama's special on envoy to the Great Lakes uh, region. I should also add that these series of lectures are being sponsored, and we, we thank very much, are being sponsored by the LSE uh, Annual Fund, which has done a terrific job uh, for encouraging research and research centres and others around this institution. Dr. Wolpe, as they say, is an old Africa hand. I'm not sure you like that designation, Harold, but you've got it. Um, he's got a very distinguished career, as I'm sure you're aware. He is a former uh, seven-term member of Congress and former presidential special envoy to Africa's Great Lakes region, uh, in the Clinton administration in the 1990s. Can, can you still remember the Clinton administration, I always ask? He's a specialist in African politics, and for 10 of his 14 years in the Congress, Dr. Wolpe chaired the subcommittee on Africa of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. As Africa's subcommittee chairman, Dr. Wolpe authored and managed legislation imposing sanctions against South Africa and overriding President Reagan's veto of the sanctions legislation, so-called the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act, of 1986, and one might argue, some would, that the international sanctions were seen by many as a tipping point for the apartheid government in South Africa then. Dr. Warpey also authored and managed the passage of the Africa Famine Recovery and Development Act, the 1980s comprehensive rewrite of America's approach to development assistance in Africa that included the creation of the Africa Development Fund. He has also served as director of the Africa Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and of the Centre's project on leadership and building state capacity. And while at the Centre, Dr. Wolpe directed post-conflict leadership training programmes in Burundi, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Liberia. Uh, some say he is now retired, but he may not feel that himself. And I'm told he is now retired, and among other things, therefore, he's working harder, and is also now working uh, on a book on the Burundi peace process. He has also written extensively on Africa, American foreign policy, and the management of ethnic and racial conflict. Um, also like to welcome my colleague and friend Chris Alden from my Department of International Relations, who will be acting as a discussant on Howard's talk this evening. Chris, I think, is very well known to all Africa specialists and certainly known amongst the international relations community. Um, Chris is a reader in the International Relations Department here at the LSE and co-heads and a co-head of Ideas Africa International Affairs Programme with Sue, I think has been the other driving force on this. He's published widely on international politics and conflict in southern Africa, as well as on Asia, Africa relations, particularly China and Africa. A marvelous book, I think, on China's new relations and expanding and complicated and interesting relations with Africa in the modern period. This is uh, Harold, Dr. Wolpe's first visit to the LSC. So, Harold, welcome. Uh, wonderful to have you here, and welcome to Ideas and to, the, to what we have to offer here. We'd like to thank him for braving the tube strike yesterday 
and the snow today, and he even managed to miss the student demonstration going down outside, all of which I didn't, by the way, and I nearly got arrested. There you go. Do I look like a student, I asked myself. No, perhaps I do, and it made me feel good. But anyway, we look forward to his insights on Washington's view on Africa and the challenges, ways, and means of conflict resolution. Can we give Dr. Wolpe a very fine LSE welcome, please? Harold, lovely to have you here. Thank you very much uh, for that very generous introduction. I, I should say, though, I think my one regret was missing the student demonstration <laughs> today. I would like to see that kind of activism in America right now. Um, I'm delighted uh, to have been asked to speak uh, at the London School um, and, and in the Ideas in Africa program. Um, this is actually, I think, my first opportunity to speak at the London School of Economics, and this visit's also provided me uh, an excuse for my wife uh, to revisit what I think is her favorite uh, city in the world. So thank you for all of that. And then I was reminded this evening that Chris here was my first, uh, I was his first boss, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, out of college when he uh, came on to work with the Africa Subcommittee uh, in Washington uh, many years ago. So we're delighted to reconnect on that basis as well. Um, in the time that's allotted to me this evening, I, I'd like to do uh, two things. First uh, is share some general observations about the Obama administration's approach to Africa. And then second, to offer a critique of the conventional uh, wisdom about democracy and peace building, not only in Africa but around the world, uh, and to describe a, a quite new approach that the United States and others are taking uh, in these challenges that face the African continent. I should probably begin with or repeat maybe the disclaimer that was mentioned in my introduction uh, that I'm now retired uh, from the State Department as of about well, nine or ten weeks ago. Uh, so I, I speak now for myself, not for my government. As the saying goes, you know, free at last. <laughs> free at last. Um, I'd like to begin with two general observations um, about the Obama administration. I've had the opportunity to serve under three presidents and four secretaries of state. And I will say without equivocation that we have never had a president or secretary of state more directly engaged with Africa. I know this may come as a surprise uh, given the public preoccupation with Afghanistan and with Iraq. But I will tell you that for us Africanists, uh, in the, it's been quite a novel experience to be able to uh, ask the secretary to make specific calls to African heads of state, to request that the president hosts heads of state on their visits to the United States, to make um, urgent calls to intervene and this crisis or that. And it's not been a, a, an accident that we have had uh, a top leaders of our government, uh, including the President himself, the Secretary of State, the UN Undersecretary of State, the Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs, the Ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, all of them make repeated visits to the African continent. Um, and additional resources have also been mobilized 
both for the Africa Bureau, which has always been incredibly under-resourced in comparison with other bureaus within the State Department, um, and for the African continent. So that the engagements we have had and the work that has been done is far more substantive than simply symbolic. Now, having said that, I should also add that the recent election uh, could well pose uh, some new challenges, particularly as it relates to the resources available for foreign assistance generally and for Africa. Uh, the President's own budget has called for further increases in levels of support to the African continent. The dynamics of the Congress this year may which are really not yet wholly predictable, uh, could pose some, some new challenges in maintaining those resource levels. And that's a major, uh, a major preoccupation. Um, the second observation I'd make is that there's been much more continuity than discontinuity through the last three administrations, Democratic and Republican, in its policy and approach to Africa. Uh, there, there's probably no one that was a more vociferous critic of George Bush's foreign policy around the globe than I. But the one exception I repeatedly had to make was Africa. Uh, for a bizarre set of reasons and circumstances, um, the basic policy set in motion in the Clinton administration, which were far less paternalistic than in the past, emphasize far more notions of partnership and mutuality of interest than before uh, continued in the Bush years. And more, moreover, during the Bush administration, as under the Obama administration, resource allocations to the continent, especially in the critical health area, uh, were quite substantially increased. Um, now, that isn't to say that I shared everything that happened in the George Bush administration, I personally feel that what we did in Somalia was appalling and wrong and counterproductive. I think that we could have been much more proactive than we've been on the diplomatic front in the Great Lakes for several years. Uh, um, but nonetheless, in, 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 more, in other fundamental ways, the continuity was more notable than discontinuity. Um, President Obama, in his speech uh, in Africa, laid out the four principal themes driving our Africa policy today. First is, and, and this is important not just numerically but in terms of emphasis, a desire to strengthen capable, transparent, and democratic governance throughout the continent, including a particular focus on the, on the debilitating problem of corruption. Uh, there was one phrase of that speech he gave in Ghana that was, I think, people caught as the, the, the dominant phrase, uh, which was the notion that what Africa needs is not strong leaders, but strong institutions. And uh, there's a very strong emphasis now on, on an insistence that the relationship between Africa and America be a two-way relationship, and that there be an understanding of mutualities and obligations on both sides of that relationship, 
particularly in the areas of governance. So that's theme number one, and the building of capacity. The second uh, is building a stronger partnership uh, with African states to advance their social and economic development so as to increase opportunities for more people. This means including investments not only in people, but in infrastructure. And that has been lagging terribly in terms of our own emphasis in foreign policy for many years. Uh, one particular initiative that's receiving considerable attention is a $3.5 billion food security initiative to modernize African agriculture, to take advantage of what really is a tremendous potential that can and should be seized in Africa with respect to increased ag agricultural productivity so that Africa ends up feeding itself and is not dependent upon the kinds of imports it now receives. Uh, thirdly, um, strengthening the public health. And as I said earlier, there's been an extension of George Bush's excellent work in this area, uh, $63 billion having been allocated not only to fight HIV-AIDS, but, but, but by also to address malaria and tuberculosis and polio, and in public health infrastructure systems, which are crucial to the continent. And then the fourth area um, that I will be focusing upon in my remarks uh, in just a moment is that of the prevention and the resolution of conflict in Africa because it is recognized unless the continent can become more stable, more secure for the various populations of African states, any hopes of sustained economic development will go by the wayside. So there is probably no higher diplomatic priority than addressing the conflicts still lingering on the continent or those that threaten to erupt. And that's what I want to spend most of my time on this evening. But let me also mention a fifth area that the President did not address directly in Ghana, which has emerged as a, uh, a fifth challenge helping to frame American-Africa policy, and that is addressing transnational issues, transnational challenges, from climate change and narcotic trafficking, trafficking in persons and arms, illegal exploitation of minerals and maritime resources, particularly in Central Africa. Uh, these kinds of issues have become central to all of our engagements with Africa. And there's the recognition at the end of the day, it's the Africans themselves that must assume ownership of their own futures. The paternalistic assumptions of the past have really uh, finally left the political scene. And at long last is a recognition that our engagement with Africa is a matter not of charity, but a matter of enlightened self-interest. And I think that's a much healthier basis for relationships between states. One thing I've learned as a policymaker and as a diplomat is that most public policy is driven not by well-laid plans and priorities, but by the latest crisis. And so it should come as no surprise that it's the conflict dimension that has come to preoccupy decision makers. Somalia, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, 
Guinea, Niger, Madagascar, all pose immense challenges. And increasingly, Nigeria is also of concern to the entire international community. Um, it's that subject of conflict and its transformation that has occupied my personal attention for the past two decades. And I want to shift now to an examination of the uh, conventional wisdom that has tended to guide most international peace and democracy building efforts. And then I would like to lay out in brief an alternative paradigm that is beginning to be pursued uh, not only by the United States, but by other countries that are invested in attempting in peace building in war-torn countries. When I left the State Department the first time, in my first incarnation after uh, President Clinton's uh, administration, I was invited by the World Bank to serve as a consultant with the bank to brainstorm ideas about post-conflict reconstruction in the Great Lakes area. And I shared with the bank my frustrations as a diplomat and policymaker with conventional approaches to peace building. Typically, the way it works is that states come together, put a lot of pressure on belligerent parties within a country in conflict to sign a peace agreement. But that, of course, doesn't mean that the next day they see each other any differently than they saw themselves the day before, or that the fears, suspicions that underlie their conflict have been put at rest. They've simply signed a piece of paper. And then we've had historically a kind of a, 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 a template um, that basically um, is a checklist of things to do to create political stability. And the way that checklist has been formed is not to reference divided societies, be it in Africa or other parts of the world. It's rather to reference West, the Western world. We look at what is it that we think makes for West stability in Western European and States and in the United States. We come up with this checklist. You create an independent electoral commission. You have a system of checks and balances. Uh, you uh, are supposed to have a, a free media, uh, the rule of law, and you go through this whole list of items that comprise democracy uh, and hopefully provide conditions for political stability. Essentially, the conventional wisdom assumes that the principal challenges facing divided societies are rational and structural. So that if you get the institutions right, if you get the institutions in place that are necessary for democracy, uh, everything else will follow. There will be stability, there will be security. A second element of the, of the conventional wisdom is that competition is everything. All of our thinking about democracy is rooted in the John Stuart Mill's uh, adversarial paradigm. A competition of ideas, of interests, uh, have taken place in full public view, will ultimately yield the best public policy in the way forward. Uh, and so you have this absolute fixation with elections 
as the be-all and end-all of democracy. And then finally, a third element of that conventional wisdom is that moral and political pressure combined with legal sanctions is the most effective means of deterring bad behavior. And so you have the whole preoccupation with getting right the International Court of Justice and juridical regimes and, and the like, all in an effort to say bad people should be held accountable. The way of holding them accountable is through these courts of justice, and that will be the deterrent to bad behavior. I think there are a number of things that are wrong with this picture. And get this to turn. The first is that it misunderstands democracy because democracy depends not only on competition but on an underlying set of agreements on who constitutes the nation state, on the rules of the game, on the styles of competition, or rather of communication that take place within the political system. Democracy depends in on cooperation as well as competition. So there's a certain understanding that no matter who wins an election, there until <laughs> the last two years in the United States, there's usually been a set of assumptions about bilateral cooperation and interaction. Um, democracy depends upon a sense of common ground. Among members of the national community, everyone feels they're in the same boat. Uh, ultimately, whatever their political differences may be. In fact, I would argue that political competition is tolerable only when these underlying conditions are in place. And rather than competition being the defining element of democracy, it's having these conditions in place that permit political competition to emerge and not to become a destabilizing factor within divided societies. That's not the approach that we take in much of most of our work in Europe or in America. The second problem with the, this picture that I'm describing, it ignores the divided nature of transitional societies. Typically, these are culturally plural societies that have a very weak sense of national identity and community. There's just no sense of connectedness uh, as between the elements of the society. And there's a tendency to dehumanize outsiders, to think of people as less than human if they're not part of one's traditional political universe. And because of that, moral and legal pressures that are brought to bear on such people are effective only within the in-group. When you have mass atrocities occur in Africa or elsewhere, it is not because people don't recognize that killing other people is not a nice thing to do. It's because the people that are being killed are, are, are viewed as less than human, are viewed as threatening, are viewed as outside their own political universe. And so I'm not arguing against having judicial courts or establishing international norms and trying to hold people who, who commit abusive acts accountable. But I'm arguing that at the end of the day, that's not the fundamental solution uh, to problems of 
mass violence anywhere in the world. One last thing I point out about this picture is that it tends to mistake what are in fact differences in perceptions of different peoples for conflict over values. There's no shortage of Democrats in Africa, even in states that have been in conflict recently, such as Kenya. There's no lack of Democrats. People don't enjoy being abused. They don't enjoy feeling insecure. And they don't enjoy having autocrats or authoritarian figures governing over them without their own participation. The problem is, again, what's the political community? What is the defined as what are the elements of the political community? And that's why I would argue that the starting point for analysis should be not Western institutions, what does the West look like, but a much deeper understanding of what do the divided societies look like before we go about the business of searching for solutions. And, uh, and so to summarize, I'm really arguing that what the, what the conventional wisdom does is that it fails to comprehend that the, the essential task of peace and democracy building in divided societies is building a recognition of commonalities and of interdependence. And up to now, the <coughs> tools we have used, the mechanisms that have been at our disposal, have not even been focused on that challenge. I would argue, and this is what I argue to the World Bank, is that there were four imperatives. Four imperatives of sustainable peace and democracy. And if these four imperatives were not met, you could not sustain peace anywhere. The first of these is to transform the uh, paradigm of conflict, of, of war, which is fundamentally a zero-sum paradigm in which each party is convinced that it can only succeed or survive at the expense of the other guy. Until people recognize that it's in their own self-interest to collaborate even within, with one's competitors, I don't believe you can create the conditions for sustainable peace. The second key imperative is to restore or to rebuild, because often or to build in the first instance, because in an African society in which the national boundaries were determined by colonial powers, you seldom had uh, <coughs> close relationships among the leaders of the various elements of the society in the first instance. So one of the, so one of the challenges is to build trust and to rebuild the relationships among key leaders of the society. And I don't mean here just political leaders, military leaders, civil society leaders. Because unless, because people must have confidence that they then when they enter into agreements with others, those agreements will be adhered to. A third challenge, fundamental to creating conditions for sustainable peace, is to build a new consensus on the rules of the game. How is power going to be organized? How will power be shared? Who should be at the table when decisions are made? <coughs> and then finally, it's necessary to strengthen the communications and the negotiation, excuse me, and the negotiation skills 
of key leaders so that, they, when, so that when they sit down together, they're better able to put themselves into the shoes of the other. And that's the key to conflict transformation. People don't always have to agree with one another, but it's vitally important that they can comprehend the point of view of the other. And so communication, negotiation skills are of paramount importance to leaders in any institutional setting. Um, and, and in some, I would argue that the, that the I'm sorry, I've not been running, running these up. I would argue that the fundamental problem is that we have been missing is building collaborative capacity. I served on the board of directors for many years of the National Endowment of Democracy, which allocates funding to the National Democratic Institute, National Public Institute, and does all this work in trying to build democracy. And everything it is focused on is building electoral capacity and building competitive capacity and strengthening political parties. Very little is work has been focused on how do you build the conditions in which people can find a means of working together. Uh, and so the first suggestion I would make is that there's a need to broaden the notion of capacity building to mean more than simply the provision of technical skills, important but insufficient, to be capacity building skills, collaborative capacity. It means, secondly, that diplomats alone can't do this work. You need trainers, facilitators, people who are expert in the techniques of conflict transformation and transforming institutional cultures. Now, you need diplomats as well. Uh, on the one hand, uh, trainers uh, seldom know much about the countries, have no access to national leaders, um, but they have the skills to, to help transform the situation. Diplomats don't have those skills, but they have the political uh, gravitas to get people into the program, to identify the right people so that you can ensure that you're doing working on a strategic basis and choosing people that can influence their own institutions and their own communities. Um, we um, have been working in several different countries. Um, when I say we, I get a little bit confused here. When I was at the Wilson Center, I started these programs. Um, but now the State Department, the British government, uh, the, the European community, the Norwegians, the Swedes, all are financially supporting this work because it has had such impact. But initially it was an experiment. And the initial idea uh, was to identify key leaders on a strategic basis, asking the, na the nationals themselves, who did they see as keys to their future, for better or for worse? We didn't just want moderates. We wanted also the folks that were viewed as the extremists. And we were able to get, in our initial target in Burundi, for example, was to get maybe 100 leaders involved. We ended up with 95 in this initial core group. And I'll talk to you more about that in just a, in just a moment. But the success of the Burundi, exper uh, the Burundi experience, where we uh, began with a small group of mixed leaders from military, and political, civil society, has so much impact that within six months' time, 
we had the Tutsi military commanders joining with the heads of the six Hutu rebel groups asking that we organize training for their military commanders jointly to prepare for the implementation of the ceasefire agreement that had not yet been signed. And then in November of uh, 2003, we brought them together, about 37 commanders, uh, directly from the battlefield into this workshop. Um, I don't know who was more frightened, they or we, uh, at the beginning of this week. But by the end of the week, they had formed so much cohesion and such a, a sense of collaborative pride that they asked that we quickly expand this program in many different directions. And over the last few years, at the, at the, at the request of Burundians, uh, we were involved in the training of the high command of the army, newly integrating rebels and traditional Tutsi leadership. It's now today one of the most cohesive professional armies in all of Africa, playing a major role, for example, in peace building in Somalia. We were asked to train the high command of the, of the police. We were then asked to, the president asked us to train his first council of ministers and then to work with parliamentary and party leaders. Um, now, Rudy has all sorts of political problems now, especially given the aftermath of the last election. But one of the things that's phenomenal and fascinating is there is no longer a political discourse centered upon the historic Tutsi-Hutu divide notwithstanding this decades of intercommunal violence, genocide, uh, terrible things that have happened in that country. Now the violence, or not the violence, now the conflict is much more like a, of a democratic sort, centering upon rivalries within Hutu parties and, and other issues, but not centered upon that major ethnic divide. In addition, the army is solid, cohesive, ignoring the political problems beneath it, which is huge for Burundi. Um, let me say one last point here about this missing link, um, and that is one of the implications of this different approach to peace building is it redefines the role of the international community. No longer does the international community come into a country uh, in a prescriptive way, laying out its checklist and moving to do the things that I'm sure that we would do in every country. Uh, instead, we become the facilitators, so that the end product is one in which the people of the country and their leaders own the process. It is they who make the decisions about where they want to go, what issues they wish to tackle, how they want to structure their institutions. It is not prescriptive from outside. And I think that's a tremendously important leap that needs to be made. Um, I'm going to say a couple more words about Burundi, but I won't spend much time about that. Uh, some of you may know the, the history, but it was a humanitarian disaster. There were 300,000 people that had been killed in the last several years, about 2 million that had been forced to leave the society to emigrate. There was a huge gap between leaders that were Bujumbura-based within the capital city and the rest of the population. Tremendously uneven distribution of resources the few commanding everything and most people totally impoverished and you had a very fragmented peace process. And so as I said, we had um, developed this um, long-term program in Burundi that began with this core group of 95, 
They moved into the security sector. At one point, the United Nations asked us to train 84 uh, ex-combatants to serve as observers in mixed groups for the entire demo, uh, demobilization, demilitarization process. Um, we even had a, a community-based program where we went into two of the most con contested provinces and we trained up 20 Burundian trainers to do this work in Kurundi, not in French, but in Kurundi. And they moved into these communities, they identified leaders, informal and formal leaders, and they brought them into these processes. And then there were small grants given to these communities for community development based upon projects that emerged from this newly collaborative effort among people in the community. A very successful uh, community-based program. Now let me finally move to the last, one of my last two points. The nature of the training is quite different from that which most people have experienced in any society. Some of you who may have some background in management, uh, training, or organizational development will be familiar with some of these techniques. Uh, it represents a fusion of some of the work of Roger Fisher in interspace negotiation uh, and the use of simulations. The fundamental objective here is that is to put the participants into hypothetical situations or simulations in which they are confronted with the same kinds of issues and dilemmas they would face in the real world. But since they are hypothetical, <coughs> when they sit back and evaluate their behavior and see what has worked and what has not worked, they're able to be much more objective, not as defensive. Then they can take those lessons and, and apply them to the real world. I'd love to describe, if time permits in the q and I can describe some of the exercises because they're really quite fascinating. Um, but it is very much a process-centric program based upon actual experiences within the workshop. It is all interactive, hardly any lecture material, a little bit, but very little. Uh, it is very heavily focused upon strengthening communications techniques, uh, uh, interspace negotiations, and on understanding the basis of conflict. We spend a lot of time on, try to build, on how do you build trust requires some risk-taking. Uh, if you communicate in a way that is, in which one is attacking the other person, you automatically put them on the defensive rather than help begin to create the conditions for openness and for the building of a trusting relationship. Um, and the last thing, the last point I'd emphasize on this sheet here is there's no quick fix. We insisted when I began at the World Bank, they wanted initially to give us enough money to do a demonstration of one <coughs> workshop. And I refused, because you can't do this on a one-off basis. What happens is the initial six-day training is very, very powerful, transformative <coughs> in its impact. People come out of that experience talking about born again, or talking about this sense of seeing the world in totally different ways than they did previously. But then they go back into their constituencies where no one else has had that training or that experience. And so you must bring them back every two or three months, both to reinforce their skills and their techniques, but also to strengthen their own relationships. 
so they can help each other as they work in the uh, broader environment. And so it must be done on a long-term basis. Our initial program was two years, but now it's been we're into our sixth or seventh year now. Um, and then finally, these are the, the, the two kinds of keys. Um, well, let me just uh, lay this out here. We go. Um, how do you do this work? How do you get how do you get access? One of the things we recognize from the beginning is that you can't make this work unless you have the buy-in from everyone of all the major factions and at the top leadership levels. Because if you don't, the process will be undermined. And how you get that buy-in will vary directly from country to country. Uh, clearly, you need someone that is perceived as neutral, as not tied into either party, and that has credibility, has trust. In the Burundi case, the fact that the World Bank was helping to finance our initial work gave it a certain gravitas and significance. Uh, the fact that I had built relationships over five years with all the parties during my time as Special Envoy made it easier to get, get this all off the ground. So I was able to get the support of all the groups, from the rebels to the government and, all, and the leadership. Um, but the entry points will vary. In um, Liberia, because of the unique relationship of America to Liberia, it was actually the U.S. Embassy that, that helped to launch the process that brought together the people with whom I initially met to explain the process. Uh, in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there I'd also been envoy for five years, and so I had the relationships established. But it was the broader international community and a committee called um, that was established to accompany the transition that asked us to intervene because they were so desperately scared that there had been no preparation for the elections, political preparation. Um, so it varies. Uh, in East Timor, Timor Lust, it was the World Bank that was the point of entry there because of their relationship. Um, the second po major point is, is that of national ownership. If there is a sense that external actors are really trying to shape this thing, uh, subtly or intentionally, it's all going to blow apart. We have always insisted from the beginning that we are there as facilitators and that we will not intrude on their decisions as to what issues they want to tackle and subjects they want to move into. And that has been hugely <coughs> important. There have been times when I was asked to call upon to mediate between the United Nations delegation there and the Burundians, because even the UN had taken substantive positions which should compromise its neutrality. So that business of maintaining neutrality uh, is absolutely vitally important. Uh, thirdly, uh, I think there is a real value to framing this process that I described to you as technical capacity building rather than as a political negotiation. A lot of the folks we brought into these rooms were people that would not go into the room with the other guy because they've been so demonized. But when we phrase this as individual capacity building, they gave them the freedom to do that. Um, and then uh, finally, then, uh, the emphasis on inclusivity. Even though there were oftentimes minority groups that didn't have much political weight or clout, we decided to include everyone, basically, so that no one could feel left out. And at times it was a challenge to, to do that and still have a manageable number. But that's so important, the principle of inclusivity, 
And finally, participants were generally, not always, but generally invited in their individual capacities, not as representatives of the organizations. People knew in advance that all the entities would be there, all the parties, all the groups, the military, and so on, but they were invited as individuals because we wanted them to feel free, not to feel that they were mandated by their organizations. A few exceptions were made in the case of the rebel groups, where we had to turn to the rebel leadership to nominate who they wanted to participate. And then finally, um, my last slide, uh, four points of lessons learned. First of all, what could be emerges in this work is the importance of addressing process and attitudinal dimensions of post-conflict reconstruction, not just the structural, not just the institutional. These are psychological issues that have to be addressed. Secondly, one needs a much more holistic approach to peace building, where you need to engage leaders directly in long-term training. Um, thirdly, you need to distinguish between technical capacity building and what I call collaborative uh, decision-making and capacity building. And then finally, you definitely need a synergy between the efforts of diplomats and trainers. One cannot operate without the other. But together, that's a very powerful synergy. So let me stop there and take whatever questions that people Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. I think we'll just move on uh, straight away. Uh, Chris, some comments, please? Sure thing. Um, some trepidation. I'm asking my boss some questions, <laughs> but anyway, old boss. I'll protect um, you. I'll protect good, you. Good, good. <laughs> I, I wanted to, to, sort of in descending order of themes that you brought up through your talk, first to, to ask you something or to press you on questions, uh, to develop some ideas uh, on the U.S. policy towards emerging powers under the Obama administration, the degree to which uh, the language of threat that seems to accompany some of our some of the public discussion of, of uh, the the arrival of China in in Africa and India and other actors. Um, and I, I also wanted. I'm just going to go through them and then give you catch okay. your breath. The other is, you talked about in a sense liberating um, Africa's uh, comparative advantage that is in agriculture. Uh, and as someone who, I, I don't know anyone who knows Congress and Africa issues as well as you do, and I'm wondering what you think are the possibilities of, it, it's, it's one thing to, to, to uh, uh, provide the supply side, but getting the market, you know, opening up the U.S. market to African products would, would have to be a, a feature of that. So how do we break out of that? How do we break that logjam yeah. within the U.S. setting? Um, and then I wanted to ask about conflict resolution and the work that you've uh, done in Burundi. It seems to me that there was a remarkable degree of consensus amongst international partners that, that was uh, important to achieving the kind of uh, gains that you did on the ground. But what does one do, let's say, in a Sudan, a, question, uh, a, a situation like Sudan where we have a variety of international actors having different agendas from the ICC? Uh, for instance, which, for better or worse, may be introducing new destabilizing elements through, through the demonizing of, of Bashir and, and various other uh, actors who have their own interests there. So I, I, I wonder if coherency on the international community is, a, is, a, is both a necessary and sustainable feature of achieving some of these aims. Yeah. Okay. Pick up a couple of those, Harold. Okay, sure. 
Um, <coughs> what was the second one? Sure, sorry. U.S. Congress on Comparative. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, with respect to this issue of, of, of the threat of China, <laughs> I can't think of a subject that is more overblown than that one. Um, <laughs> uh, there is no... Um, uh, the, the Obama administration does not see Africa, uh, China rather, as a threat or as a negative force in terms of, uh, of Africa. Um, uh, the, um, nor, nor, in fact, did the Bush administration toward, toward the uh, end. That was not one of their, of their points at all. Um, Africa is emerging, obviously, as a major economic player that can benefit African states hugely if, if some of those interactions pan out properly. Uh, we had been critical and, and, and remain critical to some extent of, Af of China uh, sort of ignoring some of the international norms in creating its uh, economic deals. But uh, the reason we don't see this as a, as a threat is that, Af is that China is learning, as have all other nations that do trade and do business with Africa, the importance of rule of law, the importance of, of uh, effective macroeconomic reforms. Um, and I think that Africa is increasingly coming into the mainstream of uh, working in a cooperative way to secure better governance that mm. can be useful to China as can, can be to others. So, so we don't see that part of it. And even, it was interesting, um, even on the question of Darfur, where we wanted China to push the Sudanese a lot harder. Um, I'm told that there began to emerge within China a domestic constituency lobbying the government for a more forceful position mm -hmm. on the issue of Darfur. Mm -hmm. So I just think that over the long term, uh, this, and then finally, the last point to be made, obviously, is that China's encountered many difficulties operating in Africa by virtue of its tendency, or initial tendency, to want to use Chinese labor in so many different places. Mm -hmm. And you've had uh, some governments, most notably in, in Zambia, uh, and some Pia populations that have protested vigorously. And so they're learning an awful lot about how to operate in the continent, and also about how to, uh, that you have to disaggregate the continent. You can't view all African states in the same fashion. So I think that learning is taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, on the, um, and I, we've even been working with China now and talking with them directly about uh, cooperating, for example, on security sector reform in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which, mm -hmm. was, a, which was a bit of a breakthrough, which I was very pleased with the, mm -hmm. the response. Um, on the second question of trade, that's really one of the thorniest of all, and is, and is difficult uh, under any administration, Democratic or Republican. Uh, a few things can be said, though. First of all, there is an absolute bipartisan consensus strongly in support of AGOA, which was the initial legislation that began to open American markets and also to provide technical assistance to Africans to increase their capacity so they could take advantage of some of those market openings. And that's at least as important as the openings themselves. There have been many instances where the openings were there, but African states didn't have the capacity to respond to that. Um, and that's bipartisan and that's not even controversial. Uh, and, and the administration has just recently indicated its intention 
to build upon AGOA by expanding further the opening of markets. Now, the broader question, of course, is, relates to the subsidization of, of, of agriculture by America of its own farmers or by Europeans of their farmers. And that's one of those issues that's not partisan, but it depends on which farmers and which districts and how people respond, but it is a very, very tough political issue. And at the end of the day, I don't think you're going to get any solutions unless you get a comprehensive set of trade agreements that have been stymied in recent years so that the negotiators can be able to appoint to benefits for the industrial states as well as benefits for the developing world. And so that's, that's going to be a struggle, and that's still going to be a major, major challenge. And it's very important, and it's, it's a difficult issue. Um, on the third question of international collaboration, you're absolutely correct about the importance of effective international collaboration. Um, I spent many months before we even tried to launch our first workshop in Burundi. Part of my time was spent in getting a buy-in from all the different 70 institutional structures, NGOs, government parties, and so on within Burundi. But a good part of my time was spent traveling the region and Europe to make certain that everyone was on board and, and, would under, and understood that we weren't trying to create alternative negotiating venues, that we were trying to do was to try to assist the Tanzanians, to assist the South Africans in their own facilitation and the leadership of the negotiations. Fortunately, my relationships with um, the various parties in the region were, were substantially close, that I was able to persuade them of that, and they actually welcomed, enthusiastically embraced what we were doing. But it was absolutely critical. Uh, if we didn't have that kind of international consensus, this could have been much more difficult. Um, we, um, and likewise, the consensus uh, in Congo, where we had virtually the entire diplomatic establishment in support of what we were doing, made our efforts so much easier than they would otherwise have been. In other places, uh, one time at one point, I was approached by um, by someone you all know very well, the woman ambassador from um, Uganda, who's played such a key role in the Uganda negotiations. And I'm blocking on her name right now, I'm sorry. And she wanted us to launch this kind of program in Uganda to build up trust and collaborative capacity among the various adversaries. And I was willing to do it. I mean, I, I was eager to do it, in fact. And so I started making some phone calls. And I discovered that there were so many international players in the mix <laughs> that there was no way I was going to take that on unless we had some means of getting all of them together under one umbrella, be it the World Bank or United Nations or something. So we couldn't proceed. It just was impossible. And I made the determination it was not going to be possible to to succeed. So I think that this notion of international collaboration is really vital. Every time we have collaboration, we have success. I give you finally one last example, and it's a very current and one very concerns me a great deal, is that uh, in, um, we had, um, the, during the, when I became special envoy, the second time under um, President Obama, um, I, my first act, was to call the head of the, uh, the special envoy for the European Union, who I had never met before, though I'd heard 
very good things about him. His name is Roland Vendit here. He's Dutch. And, um, and to propose to him that he do what Aldo Aiello, the previous European Union special envoy and I had done earlier, which was to resurrect a very tight partnership, transatlantic partnership, so that we could be working together, give the same messages, develop strategy on, uh, on a common basis, and so on. And then I had discovered that, though there had been participation by Angolans and South Africans at one point, in something known as the Contact Group, which was a, a few nations in Europe and the United States, and the EC, that uh, neither Angola nor South Africa were any longer involved. First thing that Oron and I decided to do was to reach out to <coughs> South Africa and Angola, and then later China, to, get, to bring them into the process. We wanted to expand the contact group, but the contact group didn't want to be expanded. So what Roland and I did was we created the special envoy, of spe uh, uh, special envoys, a network of envoys. And so whenever the contact group met one day, the day before all the envoys met, and we were able to build a much more inclusive uh, <coughs> diplomatic architecture. And then we were able to take that architecture, being more inclusive, and move to a much more coordinated approach on the critical issue of SSR, social security sector reform. The, the concern I have now is uh, I've left the post of Great Lakes Special Envoy. Um, no one has yet been reappointed in my place. Roland Vandit here is about to move on to, um, on to become ambassador to um, Germany for the European Union, uh, South Africa, excuse me. And, and then the Belgian head of Africa, who's also been a much, very much of an activist, is about to take a new position as ambassador to Germany. So there's a lot of um, mobility among envoys who have had this experience of building this collaborative mechanism. And my fear is that there's a risk, at least, that all of that work and all of that concerted effort could begin to dissipate. And that would be very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Can I just throw in one question about priorities? I mean, you, you've outlined, and obviously so, the, the attention that President Obama has paid to Africa. That seems to be self-evident. Um, but in terms of putting in a wider context of US priorities, I mean, when the United States looks around the world, as it does, inevitably as the only global player, um, where does it put Africa or African states within, 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 a, within the position of being a global player? Because, let's be blunt, I mean, most of the headlines over the last year, two, three, I think it's China, uh, China and China, or Asia and Asia and Asia, or there's a power shift moving from the west to the east. Um, you know, I mean, the European Union doesn't figure very much in foreign policy debates in the United States. Indeed, I don't. I think they think EU is another member of the Premier Division of English football. <laughs> so, um, where in that listing? Where do, I mean, how do you get that pro? And what is the, and that brings to the other point. I was going to ask you about the Tea Party in Africa, but that's a silly question. But it does bring up the question of domestic constituency. Where where's the domestic constituency? I mean, talking about your own country in the United States to push this one forward. Um, and then we'll open up for general yeah. Q&A. Yeah. Well, <coughs> well, clearly, 
other issues like Iran and Afghanistan yeah, yeah, sure, Middle East, yeah. are the dominant ones in the Middle East. Mm. There's no question, no other countries or continents they're, they're, come close yeah. to dealing with, with those three. Sure. But after you get past those three and you start comparing interests in Latin America or Africa or many Asian countries, I think Africa is very much in, the, in mm. that mix. Mm. Um, now, having said that, um, the um, you just said something that I wanted. To, what was your last comment? Um, um, can't uh, remember. Um, priorities. What did I say? What was your last question? I don't know. I thought. Did you hear it? <laughs> <laughs> Hell. Yeah, the oh, yes, yes. The Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. It's age, you know. Yeah. Not his, mine. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. We're, okay. <laughs> Maybe this is collective here. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. Um, Thank you very much. The, um, the constituent thing is very interesting. Uh, the end of the Cold War created opportunities for bipartisanship that did not exist mm. prior to the end of the, prior to, prior, earlier. I mean, I had some bizarre experiences with facing Republican opposition on all sorts of issues, dealing with UNITA and Southern mm, African yeah, policies and so yeah, on. Yeah. Suddenly those are no, no longer there. Yeah. And so, and the first testimony to the bipartisanship came with AGOA. But the second testimony came with profoundly in, intensified interests, not always for the reasons I would have favored, but nonetheless, I, uh, when I, start, I started my political life in the city commission, I remember there was this one guy that I was, I was always fighting about everything. That he was quite racist in his views, and I was always very upset with him. And and one time he uh, he ended up voting the same way I voted on something. And I remember him saying to me, Howard, you know, don't worry about what motivates people. Just make sure you got the votes. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that really is what matters. But there was a lot of interest in Sudan mm -hmm. uh, from the far from the right of the Republican caucus, hmm. uh, based in part upon some uh, of the per perception that somehow it was an African versus Arabic uh, kind mm -hmm. of conflict, uh, based upon issues of slavery, based upon issues of human rights. And so you began to have these strange coalitions begin to emerge in the Congress hmm. involving the Congressional Black Caucus and elements of, of the Republican Party. <coughs> um, and, and since that time, African issues simply have not been partisan in nature. Hmm. There's a kind of a broad consensus. That does not mean they're the most salient by any stretch of the imagination to most members of Congress. Hmm. But it does mean, and this is why <coughs> the presidential leadership is so important, hmm. that if the president cares enough to make something important, then he's unlikely to get terrible, much resistance within, mm. within the Congress. Mm. Now, the one exception now becomes whether or not the financial resources right. issues and right. the effort of the, t of the uh, uh, Tea Party to cut back on expenditures will right. impact on that. Okay, we've kind of up from the platform. Great presentations. I'll start taking some contributions. Uh, young man here. Um, Thank you very much. My name's Teddy Nicholson. I'm an undergraduate in international relations here at the LSE. Um, it's been mentioned in passing a few times, but I wanted to ask more explicitly about the ICC uh, and its relationship to Africa. I mean, there's an increasing 
there's an increasing talk about the ICC uh, almost pejoratively as in a way the European Court for Africa um, rather than a more universal institution but at, and at the same time the Obama administration is undoubtedly engaging more in it and this was in full view in Kampala earlier this year at the okay. review conference what I wanted to ask is are the, does the US does the US share, share the, the view that it can be a universal institution? Do you think it's going to join the Rome Statute one day? And can it play a role, a real role, in peace building in Africa? We call that a typical IR question. He asks one, but effectively there were four. Okay, now uh, I, I saw some other hands go up. We'll take a couple more. Come on, from down here. Mm, yep, please. Sorry, I couldn't see you. Uh, lady over here, please. Thank you. Uh, Ruth Van Dyke. Uh, I was here many years ago. I teach at London South Bank. Um, from a feminist perspective, the thing that really interests me or concerns me is the way that uh, rape at the moment is being used in the Congo, but in like many, many parts. So how do you kind of do peace building involving women and deal with some of these things? And I think, you know, this... Um, you know, the way that probably women are dehumanized from, from your perspective, and so they're outside of that. But it seems to me, if you're going to create real development, those are issues, particularly in the Great Lakes states, that you have to deal with. Uh, I got one from the, from the balcony. People think I start discriminating against the balcony, so. Sure. Um, you mentioned a series of, I'm guess, I think there were sort of trust building type exercises that you maybe didn't have the time to explain, but I was hoping you could explain them. Okay, okay. Well, let's, let's start with the ICC in the United States, then move on to the, the, the question from our friend Ruth on, on rape and the issue, issues involved with that in the process. So, sure. And, and Chris, if you want to pop in, please do. Okay. Okay. Howard. Um, I'm not sure I can give a very informed answer on the first question regarding the ICC. Um, I was delighted with the Obama administration's uh, much greater willingness to deal with the ICC. Uh, I, uh, I had a, a funny moment that occurred to me personally. I, uh, I was out in South Africa on a, one of my missions, and I, I, at a press conference, I was asked about this uh, war criminal, uh, indicted war criminal in the DRC, and why he had not been brought to justice before the ICC. And, um, and I said, I think he should be. <laughs> And, um, and and some very strong things about the importance of making that happen. Mm. And uh, I immediately get this urgent phone call <laughs> from the legal department of the human rights that okay. I, I, I spoke out of turn and there's no such policy uh, embracing the, the U.S.'s cooperation with the ICC. But it was a matter of like one or two days when the undersecretary, I forget exactly his title, for human <coughs> rights, um, was about to go out to Africa and uh, got the okay of the top levels of the State Department for a much more forthcoming position on the, uh, on the ICC. So suddenly I was a heroic figure instead of a scapegoat. <laughs> uh, but it was a very quick change of policy and I was delighted to see that happen. Um, but the larger question of whether or not or when it would happen of the United States embracing the ICC more fully and institutionally, I have no idea as to when or how that, when or how that will happen. 
Mm. It's still a very sensitive subject. Chris, do you have any thoughts on that? I would, <clears throat> I would only say that it's interesting selectively when it came to Bashir, we see both China and the United States allowing uh, the ICC to take action. So there was a kind of open door allowed in a selective case rather than but not wanting to frame it as a, as a, as a uh, permanent endorsement of, of yeah. the ICC process. Mm -hmm. So we may see more of that kind of selective use of, of yeah. it as an the, instrument. And in the Congo, we've been very forward-leaning now and pressing for the, uh, this guy to be apprehended and brought before the ICC. Mm -hmm. yeah. just, just quick on, yeah. Quickly follow up. Um, I just wanted to focus, given that your focus is more the peace-building side of things rather than the legal side, I just, I'm very interested in your view of the ICC, whether it helps or hurts peace building. Yeah. I, yeah, I have a, a, a um, first of all, I'm glad there's an ICC. I think ultimately it will be a helpful institution. I do wish that at times there would be more synchronization, if you will, of effort between the diplomatic community and the ICC in terms of the timing of when cases are brought. Because I think there are times when, um, They've interfered with peace processes that might have brought an end to the violence more quickly. So that's my principal concern. Mm. Okay, can we move on to the second question, Ruth's question over there, which is about on, on rape and issues right. involved with right. that and what to do. Well, I first of all stop. accept entirely your, your fundamental premise that uh, women ought to be a part of peace building at all levels. Uh, if when they're half the society, they have half the society excluded from the process is absurd. Um, I use Burundi here as a very good example. It was very interesting to me when we went through the formal peace process itself, that is, these are long two or three year negotiations at Arusha, uh, there were no women that were involved, uh, had any role to play whatsoever in the formal negotiations. Um, and so, but when we started our own um, <coughs> Uh, leadership training uh, initiative, we had made a decision ourselves that we wanted to be certain that we had at least a third of our representatives, uh, participants, be women, at least in the, in the mixed groups. In the military, that's difficult because there aren't that many, there are very few women, but in the other work. And um, much to my amazement, and I, and I was very skeptical that we'd be able to meet that target. I was very skeptical about the role women would play. I thought they would end up being a more, play more of a subjugated kind of role within what had been, was a very paternalistic society in some ways. Um, and so we were stunned by the, our experience in which we were able to identify all sorts of very strong, capable women uh, who voluntarily participated and who had the enormous respect of the men. So that at one point, when the participants chose their own leadership, uh, I think it was five of the nine they chose were women. Mm. Um, and that was, uh, I mean, it was, it was very striking because they were some of the best facilitators, natural facilitators, the natural leaders. And so uh, I'm convinced that much more can be done in terms of building women into peace building. Now, in terms of the other more very specific issue of, of rape and, um, and gender-based violence, uh, that's occurring in the DRC, that's much more complicated. Um, and there, I mean, I, I think we make a mistake when we sort of uh, disaggregate the issues in ways where every issue has its own constituency. So you've got some folks fo focus upon the gender-based violence, others upon the exploitation of minerals, 
others on human rights abuses. The fundamental problem is the war in the East. Mm. And you're not going to end or deal <coughs> successfully with any of those issues without bringing an end to the violence. That needs to be our focus, our substantive focus. Mm. And I continue to feel that way. Um, on the third issue of uh, the trust building, I can give you a, very, yeah, right. uh, a couple yeah. of very quick examples that are great fun, some of which some of you may have known or heard about, but which uh, we use in somewhat different ways. Um, uh, one of the, the first exercises we ever did with our first group up in, in Ngozi, Burundi, northern Burundi town, we had 37 people sitting around this table. And uh, we asked uh, all the people there to grab a hold of the hand of whoever they were sitting next to and play, play a little game. And the game was very simple. Their objective was to get as many points for themselves as they could. They didn't care how many points the other person got. They were only concerned how many points they could get. And every time their partner's hand touched the table, they get a point. Every time their hand touched the table, their partner would get a point. Keep track of your points. So we did this for about a, a minute. And then we asked people to stop, and everyone gave us their scores. Most folks got, you know, they were either paralyzed, they didn't get any points, they were too nervous, or they got one or two points each. There was one couple that got 10 points each, and people were stunned. How did you guys get 10 points each? Well, it turned out it was a Tutsi general and a Catholic Hutu nun. <laughs> and, and the nun explained that she uh, figured out that she wasn't going to beat this general in any test of strength. So she proposed to the general that they collaborate, that they whip their hands back and forth, and that they would both come out ahead. <laughs> well, you could just see the lights go off. No one had ever thought about collaboration. They assume, I never said a word about arm wrestling. I never suggested to use the term. But they assumed it was a wrestle. It was a competition. And uh, when they suddenly recognized it was a collaboration could get them further in terms of advancing their own self-interest, that was a profound insight. Uh, we did other exercises, much more complex exercises, that designed to, to create the same point that at the end of the day, building trust, building relationships is a far more effective in terms of your own self-interest. One other exercise that I loved, which was very simple to explain, we distributed <coughs> cards, uh, uh, sketches of a woman to all the participants. And we asked the participants uh, to, take a, to look at this sketch for 10 seconds, no more, and then to turn the sketch over. And then we flashed on the screen a, a sketch of a woman, and we asked all the participants to estimate the age of this woman. And we wrote down all the estimates of the 35 or 7 participants. Invariably, about half the participants said she was a young woman, 20 or 30 years of age. The other half participants insisted that she was an old woman, 60, 70, 80 years of age. And then we called up each someone who saw it either way to the screen, asking them to use their communication skills to try to help their colleague see it their way. And it was very funny, because very few could achieve that objective. What they didn't know in advance is that what we had done was to distribute to half the participants 
a sketch of a young woman to the other half a sketch of an old woman. What was flashed on the screen was a composite image of the two. Mm-hmm. And, this, and that 10 seconds of conditioning they had experienced was so powerful that it enabled to create a situation where two people could look at the very same reality and see totally different things. I would then segue into a discussion of my experience uh, in Burundi as a diplomat, where I came in initially and I would ask Tutsis and Hutus to tell me about their conflict. And they would each give me these long histories. And they were totally different histories. And when I played back the point of view of one to the other, they would immediately say, see, that's why you can't trust the other guy. They're lying. It never happened that way. Well, suddenly, having gone through this experience with the old woman, young woman, they could begin to comprehend that if people, if it's a 10 seconds to create that conditioning, what would a lifetime of living in different circumstances produce? I also used to use the famous O.J. Simpson uh, case in America. This black football player who was accused of killing his white wife. And he claimed that the police had framed him, had planted evidence. And before this big celebrity trial took place on TV and everything, they did public polling. And the polling showed that the overwhelming number of white Americans were convinced he was guilty of sin. The overwhelming majority of blacks that he was innocent. What was happening? Were blacks supporting him just because he was black and wanted to get him off? No. What was happening was that to blacks but not to whites, the claim that police had planted evidence was perfectly plausible. They had a different set of experiences. Whereas to the whites, police were the symbol of law, order, and the American way. It was a very different reaction. Well, once they understand that, that people can look at the same reality and see things different ways, you have the beginning of conflict transformation. You don't have to agree with each other, but now you can give them legitimate, you can understand the legitimacy of the other person's point of view. I also use that exercise to make one last point, that it takes it took all the people in the room to see the total picture. If you ask only one half the room, they never would have seen the whole picture. So if you're interested in finding solutions to conflicts and you want to build in the perspectives of all so you can find solutions that are sustainable, you've got to include everyone. You can't exclude anyone. Okay. I, I think I had uh, some other hands up. The, the, two, the two chaps there. One there, one there. You know, there's somebody else down here? Okay, I'll take one, two, and then lady over here. Okay. Hi, my name's uh, Noah Nimoy. I'm a uh, student here. I'm doing the master's in the history and theory of international relations. And um, anyway, so I've um, come across some stuff on uh, work on the Second Congo War before that. Many academics have argued that um, the United States, through both uh, supporting uh, diplomatically and militarily, um, Rwanda and Uganda was one of the reasons why the uh, war there was um, so long-lasting and as bloody as it was, um, and why um, uh, the Lusaka Agreement uh, failed. Um, so I would like to know your opinion on that. Uh, I, I just didn't quite yeah, hear the point. You could you just Sorry. make it a bit shorter and sharper, please? Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, I come across many um, academics have written that um, uh, the United States has supported uh, both militarily and diplomatically um, Rwanda and uh, uh, Uganda during the uh, Second Congo War. 
And um, as a result, um, the imbalance in power is one of the reasons why both the conflict was um, particularly bloody and why it was um, difficult um, for oh, them okay. to... Okay, we, got, we uh, peace. keep that one. We've got that. Uh, there was somebody else up there. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah. <coughs> and then person over there. OCCC from the Federal Trust. Um, do you believe that um, United States and the EU will stop Africa dealing with China? Actually, because I think all the products from China are really cheaper. All the products from America and EU are very expensive. But now, uh, do you think they will stop China doing business with Africa? Okay. We come back. We kind of partly touched on that, but we come back on them. Maybe Chris could. In, and then final question here. Hi. I'm, I'm Hi, constant um, time, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Juliet. I'm an alumni LSE student. I currently work for a cancer charity, but I do some external studying about Africa. And this is a very straightforward question, but I don't know the answer. Regarding the um, violent conflict in the Congo, I'm just wondering, I recently did an essay about the effect of the natural resources and why it's had such a strong impact on the region. And I'm wondering whether you have any idea a realistic solution to the conflict in the Congo, because I was going around in circles. <laughs> yeah, not okay. I'm going to call it. I'm going to call that the questions tonight. I know it, a lot of hands have gone up. So there's one person who wants you to write their essay for them <laughs> um, on the Congo natural resources. Let's put that in with the the question of the U.S. role in the second sure. uh, Congo. And maybe Chris, maybe you could take up the China question because we dealt with it before about the U. EU, uh, US, and China. If you want to come in on that, Harold, feel free to do so. He, he's Why the answer on that one. I'm yeah. the expert on well, that Well, I'm not, not saying you don't know the answer well, to that, I but I want to bring Chris in. But on the Congo, and can you write that sure. person's essay? Yeah. First of all, the first question, there's no truth to it. I mean, it's just not true. The United States did not support Uganda and Rwanda uh, in, their, uh, in the Second War in, in, in the, the Congo. Uh, I know that for a fact. I was one of the guys that mm. went up and read the riot act, frankly, to, to both Kagame and to Museveni. Um, uh, we thought it was foolish. We thought it was going to add to uh, instability. It was going to add to anti-Rwandan, anti-Tutsi feelings. Um, I was in the Congo, in Kinshasa, the day the war erupted, and Tutsis were being dragged out of their home and slaughtered, and, uh, and this was no way to advance Tutsi interest or Rwandan interest at the end of the day. And so, no, we never, we never supported Rwanda or Uganda uh, in that war. Now, one of the things that led to a perception of support, which uh, should lay on the table, is that uh, some weeks earlier, uh, we had agreed to send a team to Rwanda to identify ways that the United States might provide logistical or other support uh, to the Rwandans in their fight against <coughs> the FDLR the former Genesee Dares, the uh, operating in the, in the, in the DRC. Um, and they were on the ground at the time the war began. The moment the war began, they were lifted out of Rwanda and away from the country. Because we did not want that perception that we were somehow complicit in that, mm. in that action. Um, so that's number one in terms of the history of the mm. Uganda-Rwandan war. Uh, you also said, said something else that I would challenge. You said Lusaka failed. I think Lusaka succeeded. Uh, Lusaka was an amazing effort to build a, a set of agreements among the players that would address both the internal and the external elements of the Congolese conflict. Uh, and so I thought that we had done a really good job. I think that at one point, 
some things that happened subsequently were not helpful in terms of moving it to implementation effectively. But I thought the agreement itself was a masterful achievement, and, and I was very much involved and in, be present on the ground at least uh, and during that period of time in Lusaka and elsewhere. Um, on the third uh, related issue on the Congo, uh, dealing with um, the um, natural, resources. natural resources in the Congo, um, clearly, first of all, the resources did not create the conflict. Resources have added additional fuel to the conflict. It's very important to understand that because at the end of the day, it was deeper security issues focusing upon the role of the FDLR. Uh, that was the real issue in getting the, the war launched in the region. Um, the, so that at the end of the, and, and if you want to, the problem now is very complicated. On the one hand, you've got FDLR elements controlling some of the mining sites. You've got government army elements, particularly uh, part of the old um, Tutsi-dominated elements in the east that have become integrated with the army now, controlling other of the sites. You have very little imposition of civilian authority uh, in, in any of this process. Um, and so it's a mess. The fundamental solution is to solve the problem of the FDLR once and for all. And that is where I personally believe a much more effective international undertaking militarily involving the collaboration of many parties could make a huge difference. And I would, but I've, I've gotten nowhere in my advocacy <laughs> in Europe or America. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that could make a big difference. Um, in terms of um, the, um, and so what is happening now is their national community is kind of taking a, an alternative approach to the issue, which is trying to build a coalition among the regional states themselves in cooperation with a number of the interests involved and other countries in building a regime modeled on the Kimberley regime and diamonds to begin to differentiate Congolese minerals from other minerals. Not easy to do in, in, in many of these mineral in some of these cases. There are things that can be done. The Congress recently mandated the State Department and the Pentagon to come up with uh, solutions, so with a strategy to begin to deal with that. And, and we are participating with the OECD, with the World Bank, with other donors, in trying to work with the regional partners, the International Conference in the Great Lakes in trying to fashion um, solutions that can begin to move us toward an international regime that will dry up the economic incentive that these minerals currently provide. Chris, do you want to come in on the final point? Just, just yeah. very briefly. <coughs> I mean, for on China, sorry. Yeah, for, for contemporary Africa, China is, is the face of globalization. It's because China is competitive, sufficiently competitive, and able to take advantage of the liberal trading environment. EU and, and the United States cannot compete in its own domestic markets with many Chinese products, nor in third, third markets such as Africa. So that's the nature of the, 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 the trading system we're, we're in. What we do see on other areas, 
circumstances, uh, some movement towards cooperation, certainly with uh, trilateral cooperation over African development issues, uh, uh, EU, uh, Africa, China, and an equivalent uh, discussions taking place between the U.S., China, and Africa. So there is some basis mm. of other forms of cooperation there. Okay, I think I'm going to draw the uh, proceedings to a conclusion. Firstly, you'll be pleased to know we didn't use the word WikiLeaks once this evening. Uh, and I brought no new cables. And he's got nothing with him, by the way, I know. We're, 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 we're nonetheless uh, checking up anyway at this very minute. Um, I'd like to move a few votes of thanks, firstly, to you coming out this evening, uh, to Chris uh, and to Sue Onslow um, in Ideas and the International History Department commitment of LSE and ideas to this LSE Africa initiative is serious and long-term, as it should be. LSE has a long tradition here, and it's one that we want to build on and extend. And finally, thanks to, to Harold this evening. It's your first trip here. We hope it's not going to be your last. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.